This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Kathleen Ballou, the author of Bring the War Home and the co-editor, editor on The Field Guide to White Supremacy. And today we're discussing the influence of Lewis Beam upon the modern iteration of the white supremacy, white power, and white nationalist movement. So we wanted to do this show because Bring the War Home served as the inspiration for our current series of examining the influencers of the white power movement. So this is what kind of, the book kind of got me thinking and, and I kind of said, okay, so we have Lewis Beam, we have, you know, Metzger, we have Mason, you know, how do these gentlemen, how do these people have, you know, how have they contributed to the movement in terms of influence? And then how do we see that in the present? So we have a bunch of shows that are going to come out, but for today, we're going to be discussing Lewis Beam. So with that, uh, please welcome Kathleen Blue. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. I want to make, start off with like a really basic question, and that is, who is Lewis Beam, and what do you see as his kind of legacy on the on the white power movement? I think it is not too much of a stretch to say that Lewis Beam was the intellectual architect of white power as it formed in the 1980s and as we encounter it still today. He was a multi-tour army veteran decorated in Vietnam who came home and was able to operationalize his rhetoric bringing people into first a chapter of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And then he worked as an ambassador to Aryan nations, connecting white power groups all around the country. I think his legacy has been long and deeply influential for both white power organizing in that period and into the present moment. So when we, when we sit down to think of the present moment, when we look at Lewis Beam's legacy, what are you thinking about? Like, what are you taking, like, what do you take from the legacy? What do you, you know, how do you look at the current moment and then draw those lines to Lewis Beam? Well, so it might help to just lay out some, some of the history of the movement. I don't know how deeply people who listen will already know this story. So if you already know all of this, please forgive me. I'm just going to go over it really quickly for someone who might be new to this. So when I refer to the white power movement, I'm talking about the social movement that brought together Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, radical tax defenders, and then later on, a large part of the militia movement, beginning in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and sort of building up to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and then, as we now know, reorganizing itself and reemerging on a steady upward trajectory from, say, 2008 to the present moment. That's all the same movement. We can contiguous lines of people, money, information, ideology that connect all of it from that foundational moment in the late 70s to today. 
So Beam's importance to this movement, it, it's very difficult to overstate. He is the architect of leaderless resistance. He is the pioneer of social network inter internet-based activism. He's one of the leading voices in using the Vietnam War narrative to make space for alliance building between all of these different groups of activists. He, he was huge in bringing in skinheads and other culturally distinct factions in the 80s. And all of those things really built the momentum that carried us into the... Beyond that, I think that his strategies for engagement are still very much in play on the ground today. Interesting. So... What were some of the strategies of engagement that he innovated? Because it, it seems to me that so much of the, the white power movement now is online and, you know, and Beam is, is operating or he, he kind of peaks in the 70s and 80s. So what were kind of the strategies in, that he, he innovated? Well, so he took them online in 1983-84. When they when when the white power movement declared war against the federal government in 1983, part of the strategy was leaderless resistance or cell-style terrorism, and the other part was using the early internet to organize that violence. And so Beam built, he imagined and built the thing that they called LibertyNet, which was a computer to computer code word accessed series of message boards that included not just ideological tracts and assassination lists, but also included things like personal ads and other cultural materials. So this is, you know, it's like Facebook before Facebook. And we know how important this was because uh, a white power terrorist group called The Order, which Beam incidentally was a member of, was robbing armored cars, Bon Marche department stores, Fred Meyer hardware stores in the Pacific Northwest, netting millions of dollars. And they took that money and went on a trip across the country, distributing those stolen funds to white power groups and Christian identity churches all across the country. And then a few months later, Beam went around teaching everybody how to use the Apple computers that they had been directed to buy with the stolen money and how to get online. So to the extent that this is a social network sort of bound and motivated political movement, it's been that way since most of us had never heard of such a thing since 1983-84. And Beam was really the architect of that strategy. So I want to dig into this idea of leaderless resistance. So what are Let's just start off with kind of the basics. What are the core tenets, the core ideas of it? So leaderless resistance is basically the idea of cell-style terrorism. So the premise is that one or a few white power activists could accomplish an objective of the movement without talking to other cells of white power activists and without receiving orders or communication from movement leadership. So that idea... Um, basically was implemented because Klansmen in the 60s had gotten so frustrated with federal agents infiltrating their groups and because big trials like, like the Greensboro trial, like the SPLC case about the fishermen in, in the Texas coast, those big trials were costing these groups a lot of money and they thought that they could insulate themselves from prosecution by, by using a strategy like this. I think the bigger legacy of this, as Beam very quickly realized, was that it allowed the white power movement itself to disappear. It allowed people to sort of portray themselves and their activism as, as being quote unquote lone wolves, which we we should not forget is a term that comes from this movement, at least in part, instead of part of a coherent 
organized movement. Part of the reason we know that this is the case is that Beam shows up over and over again, waning though he may be, he's still influential in the movement, especially in the early 1990s. And when he first appears on the scene, you know, at Waco and Ruby Ridge, his narrative is not, here I am, I've been working on this for decades. His narrative is, I was just trying to, you know, what does he say? He says something like raise black eyed peas and blonde headed children. And then I was called up basically, I'm paraphrasing now, by the injustice of this altercation to advocate against this tyrannical government. So he pivots his rhetoric from white power, sort of open Aryan nations, these sorts of statements to a much more mainstream, more, more palatable version of militia ideology in the 90s, precisely for these reasons. So how, how has the idea of leaderless resistance evolved and changed from its original conception? I mean, would you, would you even argue that it's changed at all? That's a great question. I think that's one for somebody who does work in the present day movement. So I'm a historian. My archive stops in 1996. But I think that, you know, it's clear that lone, quote unquote, individual action is still a main strategy of the movement. We see mass casualty carried out by this movement quite regularly. And we also see through the defense efforts of white power activists in Charlottesville around January 6th, that people are trying to obscure the political nature of their actions and the ties between groups and people in order to lessen public response to what they're doing. The other question that I think is all you know, linked to this, and that's also interesting is, is this just guerrilla style warfare that they have pirated from the left, which was also doing a similar sort of set of strategies contemporaneously. And Lewis Beam went to great lengths to say that it wasn't. He he went and found a tract by a man named Colonel Julius Amos as his basis for leaderless resistance and made it about anti-communism. But this is very much like third world guerrilla strategy. And I think that that through line is important to identify. That's actually an interesting point because I was kind of just reading leaderless resistance and so much of that, that kind of document, it almost felt like that he was just taking his experiences from Vietnam and, and just kind of putting it in his own thinking and then attempting to re-implement them here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of what Lewis Beam did has to do with his Vietnam experience. I think he was profoundly impacted by his time in, in, in the Vietnam War. How much of leaderless resistance, how much of it is when looking from the outside, either as a historian or as somebody who opposes uh, white power, how much of it is misunderstood? Because you know, how much of it is, you know, misunderstood or kind of misconstrued from the original idea? How much of leaderless resistance is misconstrued? Yeah. So, so one of the, one of the ideas that came up in our conversation about Metzger was a lot of people who are kind of on the outside of the movement kind of misunderstood leaderless resistance or misunderstood how the concept was being used. And my understanding of it was the misunderstanding kind of translated as kind of they weren't looking at the movement as cohesive or as coordinated, but rather, you know, they only took, they only looked at each cell individually or, yes. or yes. something like that. 
Well, right. And that's the, that is what leaderless resistance accomplished very effectively in order to drive public attention away from white power organizing and sort of the totality of the movement and towards only looking at individual action. So, you know, the most poignant example of this is the Oklahoma City bombing, which is the largest domestic, the largest domestic terrorism bombing possibly ever. And also the the most significant mass casualty event on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And yet most people have no idea that that was part of a movement and part of an organized strike against the United States. People think of it as the work of a lone wolf or maybe a few bad apples. I think that the, 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 the I mean, more recently we still see this, right? Because I think when we, when we read stories about the Pittsburgh Tree of Life shooting as anti-Semitic violence, the El Paso shooting as anti-Black violence, the, or excuse me, anti-Latinx violence, the Charleston shooting as anti-Black violence. We have to recognize that, of course, all of those forms of violent action have their own histories and their own impacted communities, but all of those were carried out by white power gunmen with particular ideology, and in many cases with interconnection with others and with social movements. So I think seeing the whole of the thing is what the movement would like us not to do and that is the goal of leaderless resistance so then within this within this concept i mean obviously it, it includes violence but what are the political goals i mean obviously we can we can kind of say that you know overthrowing the government is one of them but you know beyond that are there any other political goals or political understandings within within the movement or is it simply you know, overthrow the government and... I think that there are competing ideas about how this is going to work. So if you look at the people who are sort of national level leaders across that time period, for instance, everyone is interested in a white homeland, but there's a lot of argument about where that should be and what it should look like. There is a lot of interest in figuring out how to do something about either changing demographic transformation of the United States and or creating some kind of minority rule government were it to happen. But people are really talking a lot about all of the different ways that the outcome could happen. And I think that that here it's helpful to remember that this is like any social movement in the late 20th century US in this way, not morally or some modern social movements have a lot of disagreement, a lot of different political leaders, a lot of visions, a lot of tussle and turnover. And we see that in this movement too. So then in, in the sense of creating a unit, like, let me step back. At, at the core of it, what is the unitary idea that holds the social movement together? If, if the idea, if Beam's idea of leaderless resistance is the main organizing principle, yeah. And then even even like kind of just looking at it casually, like how do you how do you get Klansmen, skinheads, fascists, you know, the whole range of. Yeah. In the of, same room. Yeah. In the same room. So I think it is both the profound sense of betrayal by the state engendered by the Vietnam War, both for those who fought in it and for those who did not. And I think it is a cresting sense of apocalyptic emergency related to the white birth rate and the fear that the white race will vanish if it does not reproduce. And I think that almost all social issues important to the white power movement at the end of the day have to do with reproduction. So for instance, when they oppose feminism, part of it is because they 
you know, wax poetic about the traditional gender roles of yesteryear, but mostly it's because they want to make sure that white women are going to have a sufficient number of children to ensure the continuity of the white race, which they see as their nation. The same thing with abortion. They're worried about the abortion of white babies. They're worried about immigration because of hyper-fertile women of color who might overrun white people. Um, it goes on and on like this and all of the issues at the end of the day attach to reproduction. So in present day terms, that means that something like the, uh, the new census data that just came out, most people understand that as sort of a soft human interest demographic story um, about, you know, it's a more multiracial America. These activists see that as a state of emergency and many of them see that as a call to take up arms. So a lot of like, you. you we keep coming back to this theme of violence, of going to arms, overthrowing the government. Is it, is it possible to even conceptualize leaderless resistance without violence that- No, certainly not. Certainly not, um, okay. Leaderless resistance is about a violent strategy meant to allow a fringe movement to wage war on a much more powerful state. So I think here we have to go back to the Turner Diaries. And again, apologies if you have already covered this backward and forward and sideways, but for those who might be new line of thinking, the Turner Diaries is the novel published by the National Alliance in the late 1970s that outlines a plan for how a small white revolution could the most militarized super state in world history. It provides the blueprint for how this could all work. And in doing that, it meets a really important imaginative need for this movement, because you have to believe that you can win in order for this all to work. So Turner Diaries lays out kind of a, one version of leaderless resistance. Beam articulates another one using kind of a quasi-military history kind of a thing. We see other articulations of leaderless resistance over and over through the archive. It spreads very widely through the movement. The other thing I would like to just quickly note for your listeners is if you get interested in this, please get a pirated PDF of the Turner Diaries and don't buy that book from the people that sell it. Thank you. That's actually good advice. Um, uh, but that's kind of interesting. I mean, you kind of hit on the idea that leaderless resistance is almost a meme, that it keeps, even if we kind of say the historical record we're looking at is the 70s to 1996, 1995, that even in that kind of original conception, it keeps kind of repeating itself, you know, over and over again by different authors, but it keeps hitting the same notes. Yes. And it's worth remembering, you know, going back to a part of your question, I think I didn't quite answer earlier, but I'm now realizing I didn't, is <laughs> that I think that it's a very human impulse to do this. So I understand why this happened. But I think that when people encounter a very different way of seeing and perceiving the world, a strong impulse to kind of count and detail and sort. And so a lot of the early scholarship about all of this is about things like, okay, exactly how many of them are Klansmen? How many are fascist? How many are skinheads? How many are, you know, which slogan goes to which group, which people, like which ones have feuds, which ones are uh, in cahoots, et cetera. And on the ground, what we see is that this is just not how it worked for people in the movement. So, and Beam is a great example of this. Lewis Beam led a chapter of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and then was an ambassador to Aryan nations and then also was tied to the order. He was moving through groups with all of these ideologies. And he, you know, he, he also believed in Christian identity, which is a white power theology. 
and was a practicing Baptist at the same time. These can be coexisting ideas. So I think the fluidity of that means that what you will always see in this kind of a movement is multiple incarnations of the same kind of a thing tweaked to the particulars of the group that needs it. And this is also, by the way, how it has always worked. So if you think about the clan in the 20s, which is the second era of the KKK, this is the one you probably studied in high school. It's the one that was 4 million people big and 10% of the state of Indiana. This is the one where people were open enough about this that they were happy to march down the National Mall in DC with their robes and hoods on, but with their faces visible. So that clan, we usually think about as being anti-Black and anti-Semitic. And it was those things everywhere, but it was also anti-immigrant in the Northeast where there were a lot of incoming immigrants. And it was anti-Mexican on the border where there were a lot of um, immigrants from Mexico. And it was anti-labor in the Pacific Northwest where there were a lot of unionist timber movements. And it was anti-Catholic in Indiana because Notre Dame University was in Indiana. So the way that these groups have always worked is sort of to piggyback on whatever the local opportunities and tensions are in order to make their own purposes work. So it, it's a, a way to recruit and radicalize based on local tension. That's really interesting. So I want to maybe <clears throat> look at something that you, you mentioned in Bring the War Home that kind of for this show I had to review and that's the fourth Fort Smith sedition trial. And it, it, it fascinates me because in, in the trial it, it almost seemed like cohesion, you know, it almost seemed like leaderless resistance kind of worked, right? It yeah. kind of, it, you know, it kind of prevented beam, you know, it, it stymied the trial basically. But if you could walk us through that sedition trial and its significance. Absolutely. So this trial, um, is enormously important for, I mean, the, the many trials that are underway this week, but particularly um, as we're recording this, they are completing the opening statements for the Sines versus Kessler trial in Charlottesville. And of course, the January 6th commission is, is carrying out its work right now as well. So the sedition trial in 1987 was the Department of Justice's attempt to finally do a big prosecution of the white power movement. And it put in a ton of other resources to get to this point, like many trials of members of the order, one very high profile bust of the covenant, the sword and the arm of the Lord compound in Arkansas, all of the people who made plea bargains, all of the evidence from all of those trials was supposed to go to this sedition prosecution effort. And they had 13 people standing trial on charges, including seditious conspiracy, one of whom was Lewis Beam. And so seditious conspiracy means a criminal conspiracy group of people acting together to violently overthrow the United States government. That's what seditious conspiracy is. That's what they needed to prove. You know, for reference, they were absolutely doing that. That's what they said they were doing. They were outfitted with an enormous network of paramilitary training camps, um, stolen weapons and explosives uh, obtained from military posts and bases. There was, you know, anti-tank weapons and they man made their own napalm and claymore mines and it goes on and on like that. But 
The leaderless resistance component worked very, very well in this edition case because of the 13 people, I believe everyone was representing themselves or had different representation. It was an absolute cacophony of people claiming they had nothing in common, even though the government could show wiretaps that showed them all connected and talking to each other um, for a sustained period of time ahead of the trial and plenty of criminal activity attached to those calls. One of the things that happened is that Lewis Beam was on the run from the FBI during this period with his young wife, um, Sheila, and they were apprehended in Mexico while they were near Guadalajara while they were on the lam. And because they were apprehended by Mexican police, none of the evidence that was seized in the arrest was admissible in court in the United States because it violated chain of custody law. So some of the things that the jury didn't get to see include, but are not limited to, um, records showing that Beam was falsifying not only his identification, but other people's identification. Information showing that he was part of the order, which was something that has been disputed, but was clear from this evidence. And it kind of goes on like that. When the trial got underway, Beam made the case that because he was a veteran of the Vietnam War, he could not possibly be guilty of sedition against the United States. That argument, by the way, comes up a lot, and we can talk about that more if you're interested. But I, it's an argument people make over and over again in total defiance of the historical record. I mean, the historical record shows us really clearly that veterans have been involved in this from time to time. So, so Beam is there using his Vietnam War record to make his case about his character. Sheila is there kind of performatively passing out in front of the jury. And there's a whole set of the trial coverage that's just about Sheila's health and how she's weak and frail. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then there's a bunch of other problems in this trial, including things like the jury never gets to see all of those big, scary weapons, like the anti-tank weapons, which um, seem to have been returned to the defendants after the trial, by the way. The jury also has issues like two of the jurors have romantic relationships with defendants during the trial, which I think we can all agree is a problem. One of the jurors after the trial goes on record saying that they believe the Bible prohibits race mixing. So it's a very problematic trial. The DOJ put in all these resources and then the outcome they got, the headline on the day that the trial came back was jubilant racists win trial. And the picture is Lewis holding Sheila in his arms. She's wearing a white dress and her hair drapes over his shirt. She has no shoes on in that picture. It's an amazing photograph. It could be out of something like Birth of a Nation or another much older sort of text about white supremacy in the United States. So throughout the trial, I mean, it, it, it really struck me like how much Beam had a, like a knowledge of using the media of, you know, saying, I'm not related to those guys. I'm a U.S. veteran. And, you know, it just really struck me like how like keen his understanding of playing the media of playing you know his own representation his own public rep representation yeah absolutely and Sheila too right like Sheila had reporters that were just reporting on her health and didn't even mention what her husband was on trial for when they talked about the trial. It's, it's a really interesting thing. And I think that by the, by the end of the 1980s, you know, this movement had learned a lot from its many encounters with the legal system and from its encounters with reporters. And I think that people had figured out that the way the story got told was one of the huge sort of factors in determining what kind of 
parameters for action there would be. But we also know that that Lewis Beam was certainly not contrite about what he was doing. Immediately after the acquittal, he started a quarterly called The Seditionist, where he continued to write the same kinds of ideas. And we also know, as I said, all of the weapons in the sedition trial got returned to the defendants at the end. This is an 88. And most of that momentum, the people, the weapons, the money went right into the militia movement. That's, it's kind of crazy because it just, I look at that, I look at that trial and it just seems like, like, I know this might sound unforgiving, but it's like, we have learned nothing, right? We have, <laughs> like, going forward, nobody has learned anything, and hopefully, you know, things will be okay, but obviously they're not. I think I, I might say instead that it's it's an example of how, when we think about white supremacy as a set of social problems, the white power movement is only one part of what we have to address, right? So like, I think it helps to think about it like a big wooden fence, right? And the fence was built by people who believe that white people are better than other people. And one plank in this fence is racist violence, but other planks are things like the way our juror selection process works, the way the laws are written, the way our policing works, the way our surveillance resources are directed. The whole fence is white supremacy. And even if nobody in the trial is white supremacist, it doesn't mean that the system can return an equitable verdict in this kind of a case because many of the systems are so geared towards supporting white supremacy. So something like the sedition trial or the Greensboro trial, I think are great examples of how if we want to deal with white power, it's not enough to prosecute one Lewis Beam or one of these groups or you know, even all of these groups, because to have the right mechanisms will require us to have a broader sort of social conversation about inequality in our country. So something that that was kind of interesting to me about Bring the War Home is that you, at the end of the book, you, you begin to discuss Oklahoma City bombing. And it almost, it almost in, in your sort of your writing and your examination, it almost shows how successful leaderless resistance um, is. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm kind of curious if you can walk through, if A, let's like a broad question, if you, you would consider that as an example of, of success, of leaderless resistance, of, of that ideology, and then B, um, you know, what is there to learn from that example of the Oklahoma City bombing of the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh? So yes, absolutely. It is an example of the use of leaderless resistance. And I think that that's true in several directions. First of all, I I think it's very clear that that is how McVeigh understood his action and his impact. It's also clear in the way that he has been taken up as a martyr figure for people in the movement today. I think on the other side, you know, thinking about how we prosecute, how we investigate, how we prevent, I think it's also a really good example of the problem that leaderless resistance poses. Because one journalist found that after the sedition trial, which was a huge embarrassment for the Department of Justice, and then after Ruby Ridge and Waco, where there were highly publicized encounters between extremist groups and the state that left people dead, the Department of Justice enacted a policy, like there's an FBI policy that says we will only pursue individual crimes 
we will not attempt to prosecute the movement at large. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting. You can go look up the exact wording in my book if you like, or in many of the other books about this. But that policy meant that from the beginning, the investigation was only supposed to think about McVeigh and possibly a few co-conspirators and was never even geared toward the question of what is the role of a broader social movement? Who else might have been involved? Is this connected to other criminal conspiracy? Is this part of something bigger? Those questions weren't even part of how we thought through that story. And after McVeigh was executed, I think this is even more true because now we have a story with a beginning and an end and people, if they thought about it at all, thought it was one or a few disaffected radicals and it's over. Right. Instead, what we see is that after the Oklahoma City bombing, the number of militia groups rises in the United States. There is a doubling down on sites like Stormfront and then an unbroken chain of activity that takes us into the reemergence period from 2008 forward. That's it's just kind of blowing my mind because it almost seems like that going into one six, we're kind of seeing almost the same kind of repeat of mistakes, right? You know, mm -hmm. pr prosecuting individuals over examining a social movement. Like in some of our conversations for the show, like, like a lot of analysts have pointed out, like in 2009, the, the pursuit of, you know, a white supremacist, you know, as a movement, as a terror group, terror ideology is kind of dropped by Homeland Security. Yeah. Homeland Security or D8. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up stuff. But, but as a historian, do you ever just like, just kind of just pinch the bridge of your nose and, and just like mutter oh shit here we go again or is there <laughs> is there just like just an absolute like yes and yes and no right like I think that historians live a life of well as as our t-shirt that we made for our undergraduates a couple of years ago said like don't make me repeat myself quote history right so like there is always this feeling that we're living through the same thing again. Although I will say that the, the context that we're in today is just off the map in so many different ways that I think it's hard to feel that way very much. I mean, a number of really good developments that I never would have thought would happen when I was writing Bring the War Home have happened. Like the fact that the DHS and FBI have designated this as the most significant terror threat to the country. Holy moly, that comes with real resources and political will and all kinds of chances to do some real good. And so does the attention that comes to this problem by all kinds of good people in all kinds of parts of American life after an event like Charlottesville and especially after an event like January 6th. Now, that doesn't mean that, I mean, we're in a very scary place. And I think the stakes are a lot higher today when we're talking about the aftermath of January 6th, because first of all, because I, you know, during the 1980s, Beam and others, and I think Beam is the one who wrote like that he thought that nothing could possibly ever get done through mainstream politics. And that was the that was the reason for him to pursue leaderless resistance and other kinds of violent revolution. But he said that was because he couldn't do anything politically. The door to mainstream politics was closed. I don't think that door is closed now. We get all these new stories about elected officials having ties or even outright memberships to groups that are in the movement today. There are people talking about white power ideology on our mainstream media and in our halls of governance. I mean, it's a very different kind of thing. And I think that, you know, as somebody who's not a scholar of the present day movement, nor am I 
a person with access to, you know, watchdog levels of information. But as somebody who reads the news, one question that I have is, are they still bent on overthrow of the government or are they also interested in an authoritarian state? And I think that that is something that they never would have thought that they could achieve at the time that I was studying. It's no, go true. ahead. But I mean, it seems like, like when looking, examining one six, it, it almost seems like a lot of it, you could just draw direct lines, right? It's the use of technology. It's the organizing without, without any centralized leadership. Like it, it just, like the kind of the other inspiration for this conversation was literally like friends coming to me and, and showing me like, oh, look at, you know, this, these groups on Facebook are just organizing all this, you know, without, you know, even with, even if you sort of include Trump's kind of his own rhetoric, but it, people were organizing without any sort of centralized direction and they were doing right. it all online, which right. it almost seems like a direct line to, to kind of Beam's ideas and, and sort of his own legacy. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think anybody could have predicted in 1983 how huge an engine social media and the internet would become. But I, I just, but yes, I think it is the sort of exponential supercharging of that set of ideas. And we know that those ideas have had profoundly violent consequences over a good long span of time. So I want to, you know, kind of in uh, the field guide of white supremacy, you, you have this provocative article called There Are No Lone Wolves, right? And mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of curious if you can go through that for us, because, you know, if there are no lone wolves and, you know, people are acting on behalf of this social movement, how do we sort of think about agency and sort of you know, the propagation of, of ideas. So what I mean there is that when we treat white power violence as the act of a lone wolf, we have not sufficiently responded because we don't get the full motive for the crime into the public conversation. We don't understand social ties and the power of hate speech. And we don't understand impact from one event to another. And we don't connect impacted communities. So the term lone wolf was popularized around the same time that David Lane was rising to prominence in the white power movement. His nickname in the order was lone wolf, by the way. And he's the author of 14 words and a whole bunch of other ideological writings. I think lone wolf is something that they would like us to continue to use. And I think we should not do it. I think that it creates this idea that it is uh, disconnected and unusual, and it directs our attention away from where it needs to be, which is on the groundswell of activity that connects all of these things. And I mean, I look, I'm, I'm the first person to admit that this is a really hard thing to keep on top of because you can go get a news alert and dutifully subscribe and read every single thing that is printed about the Proud Boys, and you're still reading only a fraction of what this whole activity is, right? Because we need a model that connects mass shootings that happen by single actors with organized public-facing demonstrations like Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, 
with civil war oriented, you know, phenomena like Boogaloo with the underground paramilitaries like Adam Waffen and the base. Those are all part of the same ideology. And the historical archive shows us that there's good reason to suspect that some of the activists present here are doing both of those things at the same time. That's how this has always worked. So we need to be looking at it all together instead of broken apart. Those are really wise words. Like I, I feel like <clears throat> That, that that is kind of the difficulty of of not just doing the research but kind of explaining you know this is all really interconnected like i you know i i wouldn't consider myself a talented communicator but like i always always kind of fumble and i always feel like i'm being conspiratorial or like the counter argument is like no this isn't really connected you know you're just kind of you know it, really just doing kind of the the Charlie meme of, you know, connecting things on a on a board. But as a historian and as somebody who's a public figure, like you, you're very much very visible. Do you have any advice for like communicating and kind of explaining this? Like, look, this is really, you know, it appears to us to be, you know, individual cellular, but it's really just connected to this broader movement. What do you, you know? Yeah, oh, I mean, I, well, I mean, my heart goes out to everybody who is trying to do this in real time, which I have never done, you know, I mean, I think it's much easier to make those connections when you have an archive like the one I used for Bring the War Home, because when you have that big bird's eye view, you can see things like, aha, here's this guy, Lewis Beam, he says he's just here raising his kids and, and, and his black IPs, but it seems like he's not that political. Wait a second, this is the same guy that was just here a couple of, of pages ago, and it turns out he has this whole backstory, right? Those longer trajectories and how people move through the groups, how rhetoric, what people say about what they're doing is not always the same as what they are in fact doing. That's the kind of, of depth that you can get with historical analysis that doesn't always show up very well in real time. But I also think that, you know, the, the possible benefit here to reading the earlier history is that this is the same movement. It has slightly rebranded and slightly reorganized, but it is using the same playbook. Like nothing that has happened so far is off of the playbook. So I think that means that understanding what has happened in the past can tell us a great deal about what we think would be likely to be happening now. I think we've gone through all my questions and, and topics, which means that we're at the last question, which usually like per tradition is you, you, the guest, leaving us with something to think about, something to chew on, something to, you know, some some have left wise words, some have left, you know, research ideas. It's kind of open-ended and leaving us something to think about when we, you know, at the end of the podcast. Well, so I, I gather that your listeners are specializing um, in this topic quite a lot. So if there are people out there interested in pursuing a doctoral degree in history who have a lot of language skills and want to pursue this topic, let me know and I will help you find the right place to do that. I guess I would just say that I think it is really important to just stay on the ethical side of this work, which is to say telling the story, shining the light, doing the work of paying attention is a lot of work and it is really, really worth it. And I think it can make a lot of differences in local communities and at the national level to simply pay attention to the story and do what you can to call attention to it as a social problem. You know, it's not an easy topic. And I, I really thank everyone who 
has become involved in it. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, we really are on the knife's edge here and I hope that we can push things to the right side. Awesome. That was Kathleen Ballou, author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. And she is also the co-editor of A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Both excellent books. Go pick them up. We'll have links. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Of course.